This episode of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show is sponsored by Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Get 0% financing on all new Cadillac ATS, ATS Coupe, CTS, SRX, XTS, and Escalade models through September 31st. Cadillac is a luxury car, and Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey is a luxury car experience. Call 866-865-6973 or go to holmancadillac.com. Now, here's the show. I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Mike, I got to tell you, I woke up this morning and I was filled with an incredible lightness of being. <laughs> I looked outside. First time for everything. The sun was shining. The birds were chirping. I was in traffic. Bumper to bumper traffic on 76 on my way down here. I saw a guy with a Donald Trump bumper sticker and I waved. <laughs> it sounds to me like Carson Wentz is changing your life, Murph. You know what? I may write a book called Carson Wentz Changed My Life. I think John, if John with Gruden... A, but it will have a forward by Doug Peterson because I got to say... Should we introduce ourselves first? Yes. I'm David Murphy, columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News, joined by... Mike Sealski, columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And we are, uh, to set the stage, sitting in the Novacare complex as the rest of the traveling media from the Philadelphia area, area makes his way back from Chicago. As they shamble in from the airport. It's as they shamble like dingle in from the airport. <laughs> Jack Kerouac. 10.37 uh, a.m. on a Tuesday 12 hours after the Eagles put the finishing touches on a 29-14 victory over the Chicago Bears. And I know exactly what you're going to say. You're going to say, Carson Wentz is bound to be a failure. <laughs> Nobody should get excited about this game. That you are a total raging foof who drinks Kool-Aid if you take anything away from this game other than it being a game. Somehow, within the last eight days... I've become that guy in the market. I don't know how that happened. Um, I don't know how. I guess it was because uh, after the Cleveland game, uh, I wrote a column saying Carson Wentz was terrific, but it was just one game, and it was the Cleveland Browns. Let's see. Uh, now it's two games, and it's the Cleveland Browns and the Chicago Bears. And put the numbers aside, he looked, he looked really, really good. He was very impressive. Uh, first road game in the NFL, uh, different kind of environment, Monday Night Football, John Gruden praising him. You want to talk about books that are going to be written. I think Gruden's going to do a novel called Love in the Time of Carson um, because he just gushed all night. In fairness, Gruden is a bit of a gusher. Yeah, that's true. Um, but even but even this was beyond typical Gruden levels. And I I'm thought. clearly having fun with you. Mike Siewski wrote a very even-handed contextual uh, column in the wake of that Cleveland Browns game that uh, obviously was grounds for supreme overreaction from his, re <laughs> from his readership. Look, we try to take a pretty even-handed, logical, yeah. rational look at these things. Yeah, I mean, I think before we dive into the Eagles and Wentz in particular, because we're going we're gonna to introduce a new feature to the podcast that um, we think you'll like, um, it, I think it's important to lay this down, which is that, you know, Every media outlet in any particular city that covers sports 
and really in general, media outlets in general, they all have different functions and different aims and different missions in a way. You know, what a, what a site like Bleeding Green Nation does is going to be different from what Crossing Broad does, is going to be different from what Comcast Sportsnet does, is going to be different from what Philly.com and the Inquirer and the Daily News do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always think it's kind of good to remind people of that. I do think... Um, we kind of get swept up. You know, the Eagles get out to 2-0, and and the inundation of coverage is, wow, the Eagles are 2-0. and You see it on local TV. You see it, You read it on some websites. You know, you'll see it on Comcast uh, and places like that. And I think you'd agree, Murph, that our mission are, is a little different. It's not just to say, hey, the Eagles are great, and isn't it great the Eagles are great? Our mission is like to report things honestly and objectively and to come to honest opinions about it um, without looking through a green and black and silver and white prism. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be kind of honest brokers. And I can't speak for everybody at our company, but I do think we, tr you and I try to do that. It's not just, hey, isn't this great? And aren't we excited that Carson Wentz looks so great? It's more, hey, he really does look good. Let's dive into why he looks good, and let's consider the possibility that he may not be this good moving forward. I would go one step further and say, you and I are pretty freaking awesome. We're pretty what? Awesome. Yeah, that goes without saying. I mean, I think that's what you're trying to get around. Yeah, to. of course. All right, to set up today's show, we're obviously going to talk about touchdown Jesus, Carson Wentz. You know, his numbers, it's funny when you look at them, 21 for 34, 190 yards, a touchdown, this is why you can't judge a quarterback on his numbers. Right. This is not baseball. It's funny. I've gotten the rep as a stat geek, mm -hmm. whatever that is. But football, you just can't do that. You right. Know? Look, Carson Wentz's most impressive throws last night, and we're going to talk about these a little later, several of them did not result in any. They didn't count. Yeah. One was dropped <laughs> by Jordan Matthews in the end zone. One was called back. Uh, several were called back by penalty. Uh, one in particular. And, uh, but still, 21 for 34, 190 yards, a touchdown. Uh, the biggest, the most unexpected number, I think, to come from these last couple of games, and I didn't realize it until the Monday night crew pointed it out or didn't think about it, they haven't turned the ball over. Nope. That's Not amazing. Once. Not once. 66 turnovers over the 2014 and 15 seasons. Zero so far through two games. Um, some of it is, I think, the pace at which the offense is moving. I think everybody, I think a lot of those turnovers, or at least some of them, uh, were born of the pace and the tempo that Chip Kelly wanted to achieve. And I think with respect to certain players that uh, maximized the opportunity for them to turn the ball over. And yes, I'm looking at you, Mark Sanchez. Um, Mark Sanchez is a turnover machine anyway, and then you get him playing fast, and he's just going to turn the ball over more frequently, more quickly. Yeah, so I, that's I, part of it. I guess if we were going to break break down the setup of, of today's show, one one part one, one part will be Carson Wentz, obviously. Another part, and I think a very significant part, and one that can't necessarily be teased out from Carson Wentz, is my boy Dougie Fresh, man. Yeah, the hair. Just call him hair. I'm I'm telling you, better not cut it <laughs> or color it. It he's, is. Uh, he, he, look, man. And Gruden said this again. It's really tough to cite Gruden about anything. Cause it is. It is. He could he could uh, find a cinder block in the parking lot and put an A grade on him. 
But Doug Peterson looks like a guy. Frankly, he, in these two games at least, he's looked like a guy that Andy Reid never was. He's had all three timeouts, I think, in the last two minutes of every half. Mm-hmm. He, again, has not turned the ball over. The penalties last night were not good, but they were also penalties born of, A, some questionable calls on the part of the officiating staff, but B, guys getting beat, like Jason Kelsey, who right. just got manhandled by that nose tackle, um, that second-year nose tackle the Bears have. His name escapes me. Uh, but the play calling, here's the thing that jumped out to me, and let's talk about this first. Okay. They called a completely different game plan last night against the Bears as they did against the Browns. Right. And I think that's important to point out and worthy of pointing out for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you look at guys like Bruce Arians and Bill Belichick, who, who I think almost everybody would agree are, are the two leading minds in the game today, at least. Certainly based, Belichick. and Based and, on the results. Yeah, Arians but, would be in the top three or four. Based sure. on the results that they've gotten from their talent. You can yes. throw Bill, Bill O'Brien in there as well. But Bill O'Brien leans a little more, has leaned a little more on his defense. Uh, I know the Cardinals were good last year, but those guys institute. A, you can watch those two offenses play every week, and swear that you're not seeing the same offenses the week before. Right. They're, they're completely matchup dependent. They they look at ways to exploit another team and how to beat it. And that was always my big beef with Chip Kelly, where he just kept on running the same thing at all times, regardless of who the opponent is. And his belief was, hey, if we execute it, they can't stop it. So why, why should we allow them to dictate to us what we're going to do? And that's right. just not how it works in the NFL. Doug Peterson last night, if you remember in the Cleveland Browns game, they come out, they run a lot of read option looks. Carson Wentz never actually keeps it. That helps set up the intermediate passing game. Mm-hmm. They attack the outside a lot. Yesterday against the Browns or on Monday against the Browns. Uh, the Bears. I'm sorry, the Bears. They don't run at all. Early on. No. They come out spread. They, they come Empty out, backfield, Wentz in the shotgun. They come out and spread, spread, that, spread that team out. No huddle. No huddle. A lot of quick stuff, a lot of one-on-one matchups. Mm-hmm. And that's just that, that's Doug Peterson sitting down and saying, hey, if we go five wide empty backfield tempo, we're going to have one-on-one matchups. And I know my quarterback can make the throws as long as he's picking the right matchup to pick on. And then Carson Wentz takes over and, and does his job. I thought that was fascinating. I mean, if you look at the numbers, Ryan Matthews had 22 carries in that season opener against Cleveland Browns. He had nine last night. Yeah. Darren Sproles, meanwhile, had 12 carries last night. Uh, Wendell Smallwood gets in the game, a couple carries, 16 yards. I think he had a catch, or he had at least had a target. Uh, Trey Burton, five catches. Jordan Matthews, six catches. Nelson Aguilar, four catches. Doriel Green-Beckham, two catches. I thought the, the, the slant to Doriel Green-Beckham on either third or fourth down – in the first or second quarter. Fourth. Was it the fourth quarter? Oh, no, it was first or second, yeah. It was a fourth down play. Like, that yeah. to me is, and again, Green Beckham only shows up the box score two for 18 yards. But if they acquire Green Beckham thinking that we can use him in situations like this where we get a matchup like that where we absolutely need a first down, like, that's making great use of your personnel. Yeah, that's, to go back to the point you originally made about how a box score doesn't necessarily, and stats don't necessarily tell the entire story, that gets to the heart of what you're saying with respect to Wentz going 21 for 34 for 190. You look at those numbers and you say, big deal. But if you watched that first possession, if you watched how decisive he was, how he went to exactly the right place every single time, the only incompletion he threw on that drive was the shot he took to the end zone to Brent Selleck. And all the only thing that kept it from being a touchdown was an incredible play by uh, a Bears defensive back. 
you know, who literally got the the very edge of his fingertip on the football to deflect it out of Selleck's hands. Um, so the confidence that Peterson shown showed in Wentz right from the beginning of Monday's game was really it was startling because we nobody knew what to make of Wentz making that transition. How was it going to go? How was a guy who played regularly in high school for just one year, who played regularly in college at a you know at North Dakota State for less than two years, who only played one preseason game, going to be able to make this jump? How long is it going to take him? And it doesn't seem to have taken him any time at all. You know, Peterson has has turned things over to him in a way that. You know, A, Chip Kelly never turned over to any quarterback um, over the three years he was here just by the nature of his system. And that Andy Reid, I don't know, ever turned over to any quarterback he had here. Um, And that says something very good and promising about Wentz, but it also says something good and promising about Doug Peterson in that he's allowing, he's humble enough as a coach to allow Carson Wentz to do that. Like, he's not a micromanager. You know, that... That's one of the, so far to me, the, the biggest difference between him and Reed is how crisp the Eagles look. There aren't, they aren't, um, you know, messing around and letting the game clock get down to two seconds, three seconds and having to burn a timeout. They're, they're executing in the red zone. They're, there's not that indecision that you would see out of a rookie head coach normally, specifically one that was groomed by a guy who has long had trouble in those regards. So, you know... After one week, I was willing to say, "Hey, let's see what more. Let's see what else happens." We've seen a little bit more, and it's pretty impressive. Do you think Doug Peterson is learning from the flaws that he saw in Andy Reid's system? I mean, we all do that. No matter how much respect you have for a guy, you know, you look at things from the ground level. I mean, look at us with our managers or, or our coworkers. We can see things from the ground level and say we would do this differently. As good as as good as what I'm. Right. As much respect as I have for this guy, I would do this differently to solve this problem. Yeah. No, I think I think that's true. I mean, I think you apply that to any business that you've been in. If you've worked in the same industry but in a different market, um, in a different place with a different style of doing things, you if you're smart and and you are committed to excellence, you're going to do that. You're going to look to see what works, what doesn't work. Um, you know. If you work at one website or newspaper that's committed to covering that, that whose job is to cover sports, you might look at it and say, "Okay, well, we did X, Y, and Z well, but we had issues with A, B, and C. So if I go to work at another website or newspaper, I'm going to take X, Y, and Z with me and try to fix A, B, and C. And it looks like that's what Peterson has done. Maybe he was never in a position under Andy to say, "Hey, look, Andy, you know, you should be doing it this way." You know, he's he's the mentee and Reed is the mentor. How often do you say that to somebody who's mentored you? Like, no, you're doing it wrong. And if I were in your position, I would do it differently from you. It doesn't happen very often. The question is, who's the mentor? Fresh and full of life. That's got to be Carson Wentz. That's me today. Because again. <laughs> yeah, you have to understand, Mur- Murph, first of all, Murph up here on the second floor of the Novacare complex, he, he arrived wearing and still wearing the Carson Wentz style black horn rim glasses to to kind of catch the the Carson wave, I presume. I I didn't even think about it from that point, but maybe really he has maybe he's infiltrated my subconscious. He he is he's invaded your soul. And the other thing Murph has done is he he pulled into the parking lot wearing kind of a blue plaid button down 
which he all but ripped off once he got into the Novacare Media Center. Uh, and he's doing this show just in his undershirt and a pair of jeans and sneakers. So, um, you know, just kind of setting the stage for how much things have changed for him since Carson Wentz came along. I don't know. Mike sounded a little too excited when he was describing me. I'd be more excited if you take shirt. your shirt off because then I would have a brother in shirtlessness in the NFL. You know, it's not just me and Tebow anymore. We need, we need more. <laughs> Tebow's not in the NFL anymore, brother. All right. So, so Peterson, and again, as good as well as crisp as they looked from a logistics standpoint, it's still the game calling that I've been very, very impressed with. And let's go back to that play that I referenced. Uh, it was a fourth and two. Mm-hmm from the 28-yard line of the Bears. Now, we talked about this last week, too. This is another thing I like about Doug Peterson. He's going, he goes for, he's it. Going for it in that situation. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think that you're going to see that catch on in the NFL as more coaches. You know, I, Doug Peterson does not coach with fear, and I think that's he liked that. He liked that Carson Wentz doesn't play with fear, and we saw that last night, and I, I think Doug Peterson's not scared of... Uh, you know, I think the reason why a lot of coaches stick to conventional wisdom is because when you don't stick to conventional wisdom and you fail, you're crucified by people who were threatened by you right. going against conventional wisdom. We saw a little bit of that in Chip Kelly. Yeah. Not, you know. yeah just, to, just to piggyback on that very quickly before we get to the piggyback play. Away. Um, I wonder, because Doug mentioned after last week's game against the Browns that, you know, you do the math in those situations, you know, fourth and X from this yard line, you know, all that sort of stuff. I wonder if he's doing the math with with respect to, Field goal percentages, like the num, the, the sheer percentage, because uh, kickers so rarely miss mm-hmm. nowadays. Even though we saw one Monday night, the, the the Bears guy hit the upright on that thirty-one yarder. Kickers so rarely miss nowadays that I wonder if he's saying in his mind, you know what? Yeah, Caleb Sturgis is probably going to make this, but I don't want to get caught in trading field goals. I I want points because if I get a touchdown and an extra point, it's more than twice as much as a field goal would be. And if I'm willing to go for it, the 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 payoff of getting it so far outweighs the three points I'm going to get that it's worth it. Well, I think it goes down to, I mean, as a fan, when your team, uh, as a fan, as a team you have money on, whatever, when you're watching that game and you see them stop stop a team on third down and it becomes fourth and one, are you ever hoping that they go for it? No. You're no, you're hoping that they, they settle for a field goal. And right. I think that if you just flip that logic right. around, you know, if coaches think like we do, uh, you know, Doug Peterson might be saying, well, if in that situation I'm hoping that the defense kicks a f- or the offense kicks a field goal, why would I then, as an offensive coordinator, kick a field goal? Right. You know? Give them what they want. Why so give anyway, them what let, they want? This was fourth and two. Uh, 0-0 game, 10-14 left in the first quarter. I'm doing my best uh, play-by-play here. Uh, Doyle Green Beckham's lined up wide right. The Eagles are four wide, uh, single back in the shotgun, Sproles to Wentz's left. Left to right on your radio dial. <laughs> Clearly a man situation. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they snapped the ball. And here's, here's the thing I like. There's no over-the-top help for Doyle Greenbeckham. In that situation, we've mostly seen Doyle Greenbeckham run a fade. Yep. He's matched up against a smaller cornerback, one, a, a not particularly distinguished smaller cornerback. So that guy has to – at that point, that defender has to decide – do I cheat outside or inside or play it straight up? Right. I guess the better way to say that is he can't cheat one way or the other. Right. You know, his, his mind's thinking he's either breaking outside on the fade or he's going inside 
on the uh, on the slant. In this case, Beckham, who's hu- just a huge individual, uh, takes a step, cuts inside, automatically has inside position, and Carson Wentz just makes the throw. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's and it's interesting because this was the this was this was the drive where Green Beckham got his only two yep. receptions. You know, it's not like this guy has been an integral part, right? Of, but he has a tool that Doug Peters that Doug Peterson can use in certain situations. And from that perspective, he's an important player. Yeah. But to um, the other play that really impressed me as it happened. And I heard Brian Baldinger from the NFL network um, break it down this morning on the radio. Um, and I don't know if you remember it. There was a screen to Aguilar in the third or fourth quarter. Um, the went, Eagles went through high a little bit, a little through a little bit high, but it was a first and first de- down from the 14. Great design play. It was a, terrifically designed play and Baldinger took you through what Aguilar did which is he started out in the far left and came in motion which is a common thing you know for a wide receiver because he was so far out to the left that if he if he's still standing there when the ball was snapped there's only one thing he can do he's got to make an inside move because there's no way for him to go outside so Peterson brings him in motion towards the line towards the ball along the line of scrimmage and the rookie cornerback covering him is trained to think that Aguilar is going to come all the way across, cross Jason Kelsey and Carson Wentz to the other side of the line of scrimmage. Except when the ball is snapped, Aguilar doesn't do that. He immediately stops and runs right back to where he was, turns around and runs right back to the outside on the left. The cornerback doesn't notice that because he's so conditioned to follow him across the, across the line of scrimmage that he's completely out of the play. He's five to six yards away from Aguilar. Aguilar catches the screen, and even though it's not a particularly well-thrown ball by Wentz, he's still able to gain eight yards in an area of the field where it's really hard to create space. And just by scheming that play, Peterson gains eight yards in a place, you know, in the place in the field where it's hard to gain yardage, and all of a sudden you've got second and two from the six. And the Eagles go on and score a touchdown. That was the, the possession where Matthews, Ryan Matthews gets in on that really impressive run from the three-yard line. And they're up sixteen to seven, and they're rolling. Yeah, I'm watching the. I'm actually watching the play right now, and it was. I remember watching it last night, but you can see it. Um, Thirty-two Hall. I'm yeah, not, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, uh, he's a kid from Northern Iowa. He's a rookie. Okay. Um, you know, and it's just one of those. Yeah. Things so you can see. So so so. Uh, uh, Aguilar starts wide left outside of Jordan Matthews, and, and as you said, Aguilar comes in on. You see it all the time. That yeah. that sprinting pre- motion pre-snap yep. end around type look and it's a man coverage uh 32 hall goes sprinting across um sprinting across the second level of the defense and then on the snap Aguilar just turns on the brakes and once he does 32 is is on the opposite hash mark and if this is a good throw by Wentz it's it a, tu- a touchdown it's a touchdown yeah um I mean it, it actually I don't think it was designed to be a string pass it was it was designed to be a swing pass mm-hmm. um but Wentz you know had to throw it high but yeah it's that's the type of play where you look at it and you say wow Doug Peterson the touchdown pass to Trey Burton the two-yard touchdown pass to Trey Burton you know who throws that you know that was that was Gruden at his Grudenist last night you know who runs a play like this in yeah. third and goal from the two yep. you know um but it was it was a well-designed play like you know just sling it have when sling it sidearm you've got three blockers in front of Burton and two yards to go um you know some some very impressive stuff from Doug so far now again we are going to get all into our boy CW the CW Carson Wentz. We got to come up with a good nickname for the kid. Yeah. 
Um, and, and let's stop with the Carson City stuff. That's just, <laughs> first of all, no, no one knows Nevada geography. Um, so it's not even necessarily topical. Right. But. I just don't like it. I've seen it everywhere. Okay. Um, so do you want to introduce the, 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 the title of this feature that we're going to have? I do. I'll introduce the title, but let, let's, let's hold off to, on, on actually doing it until after we okay. exhaust this other stuff. Sure. Because um, I guess the title requires a disclaimer. Um, and we're going to try to make this a recurring segment on Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show, one that in my uh, commute today, I decided we could name Throwgasms. Yeah. Because that's my reaction to some of the throws that Carson makes. <laughs> and as... Uh, I would suggest that we do this every week for as long as Carson Wentz's organs remain intact and his arm remains unbroken uh, until I should say he decides again to try to make a spin move at the uh, sideline uh, into a 250-pound linebacker who looked quite pleased that he had the opportunity to explain to Carson Wentz why that was not a good idea. Good idea. <laughs> um, that poor kid. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Wentz, compared, compared to his college, when, when I first was a college tape, I... I use the word Cam Newton in terms of his scrambling ability, not, not as big as strong. But the one jarring thing about him that I think I've realized in his first couple of games here is he's not going to be a scrambler. Like, no. I mean, he's not going to be a, a designed runner. No. He, he can do what Luck does and, and Smith does at times. But it, that if you want to talk about speed of the game and how different it is at the NFL and, and even Division One, but one FCS no less, watch, go back and watch Carson Wentz run the read option at uh, North Dakota. North Dakota. I mean, he is a, he looks like Cam Newton out there. Yeah. But he just, he, he doesn't look he like can't Cam get Newton to, now. He, he cannot no. get to the edge uh, against NFL defenders. But regardless, that's kind of besides the point. Anyway, th this segment will be called Throwgasms. The only, the only caveat I say is at some point, one of the higher ups in our company who pretends to listen to this podcast might actually listen to it and decide that Throwgasms is an ob objectionable term. Um, that's not fit for a family-friendly podcast, at which point I will argue to that uh, executive, that unnamed executive, that uh, the play on words on which it's based describes a naturally bodily function. <laughs> that is the mechanism for all of life. It is. And none of us would be here if not for it. And I think that... I'm uh, sure that executive will be persuaded by that line of reasoning and argument. Uh, I, and I will, I will read my personnel file. <laughs> Out loud, dramatically, <laughs> the following day. So anyway, we're gonna, we're me and Mike are gonna back. Mike and I are gonna go back and forth, and uh, fawn over our favorite Carson Wentz throws of the night. Mm -hmm. And you guys can follow along and perhaps chime in on our Twitter feed hashtag Throwgasms. I'm sure that's I'm sure it's been used before. Probably. Uh, the defense. Yes. Because this is another, another um. It was a huge question mark to me going into this game because as we saw with Jalen Mills when he tried to cover Alshon Jeffrey. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, not good. Um, not good. But the defense looked very uh, – the offensive line, too. The offensive line, with the exception of Kelsey, you know, committing those, mm -hmm. you know, terribly timed holding penalties. Not that there's ever a good time for a holding penalty. Um, but the one – and we'll, we'll get into this later during the throwgasm segment. Um, the one of which nullified – what might have been Wentz's best throw of the night, the the one to Selleck, you know, deep down the you know field, man in his face, you know, off his back foot, all that stuff. Um, but the offensive line is good, good, look good. The defense, the one caveat I would give, again, not to be uh, you know a total downer here, but uh, but let's be honest, you are. The uh, somebody out of Chicago reported that uh, Jay Cutler actually played last night with ligament damage in his right thumb, mm. um, which may or may not have contributed to some of the 
god awful throws he made. Um, it certainly, you know, I don't know if it had too much to do with his decision making, um, some of which was really poor. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the, the the defense looks, with the exception of the cornerbacks, who you know are going to be a weak spot, I think. Um, and I'm not sure how much is to be gained by keeping Leotis McKelvin out there compared to Jalen Mills. Um, you know, if if it's the it's kind of the Wentz Bradford thing in in a smaller version. If if you think Mills has a future here, put him out there and let's see what happens, rather than relying on the 30, 31 year old guy who's been around and isn't getting any better. Um, but in terms of a pass rush, in terms of just kind of an aggressive nature, it is a complete reversal from what we saw over the last two years anyway under Bill Davis. I mean, so much more just reaction, so much less confusion. You know, Jim Schwartz really seems to have simplified what each of these guys' assignments are, and, you know, it's allowed them to play freer. Uh, you know, and the, and the guys he's brought in have been okay. Like, Ron Brooks played okay last night, should have had an interception, but played okay. And, you know, the, the challenge will get, more difficult against the Steelers next week and as we move through the season, but so far so good. A couple of interesting things that jumped out at me. First of all, before I forget this, I thought one of the more insightful portions of the Monday Night Broadcast was when John Gruden relayed something that Malcolm Jenkins said to him about playing defense under Billy Davis. And it made a ton of sense. And I'm not sure that I thought about it, I thought about, I've thought about it from, from the offensive standpoint, but I never thought about how it affected the defense. And so what Malcolm Jenkins said was, you know, because you, you've heard the, you know, the narrative. Um, I know we use that word all the time. We've got to find a better word. Someone said that in one of our iTunes reviews that we use the word narrative, narrative too, too much. much, which I agree, but whatever. Narrative, uh, narrative, narrative. Also, by the way, leave us a review. Yeah, please. Because apparently people like that kind of we stuff. We need feedback. We need, uh, we need stat. We need to pat our stats. We need mm-hmm. to juice the, juice the stats. Um, it was the communication or lack thereof that a defense can have with each other as they are practicing against a offense that does not allow time between mm-hmm. plays for coaching. Right. And John Gruden said something to the effect. It wasn't earth shattering, but it was also something that I'm not sure Malcolm Jenkins has ever said publicly to us. He said last year we would make a mistake on defense and we could not correct it because against that offense, the way Chip Kelly structured practices was his belief was practice is all about doing the reps. You do as many reps as you can and then you, Go back and debrief it in the film room, and you do all your coaching, all your do, all your corrections uh, in the film room, and that completely flies in the face of a number of different a number of different learning styles that I'm sure right. any elementary education uh, any elementary education background listener can can attest to. You know, there's there's something called tactile learning where yeah. you need to you learn by doing. I know this because I am I am one. Right. I can't I can't pay attention to what you're telling me. I need to be able to see it. You know, I mm-hmm. need and. Bill Davis and Chip Kelly did not allow time to do that. And Jenkins said to Gruden, apparently in the pre-production meeting, like that was a huge deal. Yeah. And again, uh, anyway, two things that jumped out at me, the safeties. It can't be understated, overstated how much impact two good safeties have on a defense. Mm -hmm. We've said this for a long time through the eras or the errors. Through the post Dawkins era. Through the post Dawkins era, Jaquan Jarrett, Nate Allen, blah, 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 blah. Uh, those guys are, are phenomenal. Uh, Ma- Malcolm Jenkins made a number of huge plays last night. He's kind of playing that. They, they've got a guy, kind of got him playing that rover position. Yeah. I think the I think Penn State calls it the hero position. And uh, yeah, I mean they're just they're they they take away a lot of space where plays. You, can be you've made. got two really smart 
guys back there in Jenkins and McLeod. It was funny. I did a column for Monday uh, over the weekend about McLeod and his interception against the Browns uh, last week. And if you watch the play in real time, it just looks like utter and complete chaos. Like Robert Griffin throws a bad slam pass. Jordan Hicks gets his hand on it. Um, Nolan Carroll tips it, and it ends up in Rodney McLeod's hands. But if you talk to McLeod about how he sees that play, there's a reason he makes that play. It's because he's reacting to what he sees it's, it's, and, and is in the right position to catch that ball even after it's deflected twice. It's, it's akin to uh, the phrase you hear in hockey all the time, like the puck just seems to find his stick. Well, there's a reason that the puck finds certain guys' sticks you know, in front of the net when the net is wide open. It's because they've put themselves, they've anticipated the play correctly time and time again. They, are, they, they anticipate how things unfold in front of them, and there they are waiting for the puck to get to them. And it's the same thing in football, too, um, if you're a safety. So, yeah, you're right, because that, that allows, the presence of Jenkins and McLeod allows a guy like Jalen Mills to simplify what he does. All I got to do is worry about this guy on the outside. If he makes an inside move, I know Malcolm or Rodney is going to be there. And so let me just focus on doing this one thing well. And because I'm a rookie seventh-round pick, that makes my life easier. The crazy thing about Rodney McLeod, he's like your size. Yeah. He's really small. I mean, not that you're small, but like for a football, for a football player, player, you would be small. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not that much bigger than you, is he? he, he I, he's listed at 5'10", 195. But he's, I mean, he's... Like you stand next... I, every time I stand next to him, I'm amazed because he's a, he's a hitter, yeah. you know? Oh, he, he, he... Yeah, I like him a lot. I mean, I think he's... You know, he's a Damatha Catholic guy um, in both basketball and in football. Damatha turns out those guys who get to the NFL or the NBA or Brian high levels. Westbrook. Yeah, Brian Westbrook. They're smart players. They're always so smart. Um, you know, so that doesn't surprise me in that regard. The, the, the developing theme I'm curious to follow as the season progresses pertaining to the defenses. Uh, Vinny Curry had 46% of his snaps, the snaps yesterday, and that might be his career high, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. Um, and and Connor Barwin only played 79%. And I think if you were to look at a guy, if you were, if you were to find one player who has not necessarily adapted to this scheme as well as the rest of his teammates, I think it might be Connor Barwin. Yeah, because I think the 3-4, I mean, that was part of the reason they signed him in 2013 was that Barwin was a natural for that kind of filling whatever role you need him to fill. I can cover, you know, a tight end or a running back out of the backfield. I can rush the passer. I can disguise what I'm doing on any particular play based on what Bill Davis wants me to do. Um, You know, Curry is just much more of a straight-ahead, up-the-field kind of player, tailor-made for what Jim Schwartz does. So I wonder if – I think you're right. I wonder if this system does play to to Barwin's strengths – in that regard. And I guess it wasn't a career high for Vinny Curry because now I, now that I look at the snap counts versus Cleveland, it was, again, Curry at 46%, Barwin at 69%. I, I just think that's interesting. I also think that a lot of what we say about Doug Peterson is holds true for Jim Schwartz. I think that he – I don't know that guys have locked in roles on this team other than the safeties uh, and yeah. they, perhaps the cornerbacks. Um, you know – Connor, Bar- there, there's a package that he used against the Browns where all four linebackers are on the field. I mean, mm-hmm. Con- and Barwin is a fourth linebacker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw Barwin at, at times. Barwin floats around, you know, on that second level before mm-hmm. lining up last night. I remember specifically one moment when he did it. I'm not saying Connor Barwin is playing poorly. I, I'm just saying that I he's not he's not an every down player right now. Yeah. 
And Vinny Curry, I would not be surprised to see Vinny Curry start working his way up. And perhaps by the end of the season, those two having their 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 snap counts kind of flip-flop. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the Eagles drafted Curry and Brandon Graham under the previous regime, under Andy Reid. You know, they were pre-Chip Kelly draft picks. So, and Barwin was a Chip Kelly, Bill Davis signing. So, within Bill Davis's scheme, Barwin you know, was much more impactful, um, certainly in that second year where I think he had 14 and a half sacks, something like that. Um, so I wonder now if what you're seeing is instead of Davis taking Graham and Curry and saying to Graham, for instance, okay, you're going to have to learn to play this way, or to Curry, sorry, you can't get on the field because you can't play this way. We're now seeing something of the reverse of that, which is Brandon and Vinny, go play the way you know you can play and you're, you've always played. And Car and uh, Carwin Connor Barwin is versatile enough that he can do the other things. Like if we're gonna have Brandon Graham coming a blitz, Barwin, you got to drop back into coverage, you know, and just kind of patch things up more often than not. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Stephen Tullock played twenty three percent of the snaps last night. There was a point in time when he was in there at middle linebacker over Jordan Hicks, but I think that quickly that quickly changed. Michael Kendricks, ugh, like what does he do well? Uh, I'm looking for something. He was in coverage on a play that, uh, like the best throw Cutler made of the night. Um, was it to the tight end? Um, was it Zach Miller? I mm-hmm. guess. And Kendricks was flailing in the background yeah. as usual. Yep. Uh, 38% of the snaps last night for MK. Again, one thing I'll be watching moving forward is if Tullock moves into that middle linebacker role and Jordan Hicks replaces Kendricks in on the that outside. outside role because Jordan Smith is not big enough to play the kind of middle linebacker that Schwartz, Schwartz wants. Want, no, no, he's not. There was a play last night. I, the, the the Bears made a completion for a first down, and Tullock delivered a hit on the receiver. Just dropped him. You know, it was kind of right place, right time sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's what you, you, I watched that, and I thought that's what that's what Jim Schwartz wants. He doesn't want, you know, yeah, Jordan Hicks is is really smart and really sound and gets his hand on passes and forces turnovers here and there. But he's not a hitter in that way, no, Tulloch is. But, but his strength is in coverage. Right, and, so put him on the outside. And among, among Michael Kendrick's weaknesses is uh, coverage. The um, what Oh, this guy, I wanted to give a shout-out to Nigel Bradham because I think Nigel Bradham has played very, very well. And I, I don't think that he plays a position that's very easily quantified. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know that there's anything you can point to that says Nigel Bradham is playing very well, but the guy's really, really. His interception me. last night. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, turnovers are kind of fluky. Yeah, but he he's always around the ball. Mm-hmm. He seems to have a nose for the ball. Uh, Jim Schwartz seems to know seems to know what he was talking about when he extolled the virtues of this guy uh, in training camp. Because yeah. he, he Jim Schwartz seems to be a guy who reserves his uh, praise uh, for small doses and yes. and picks his spots and. Nigel Bradham is one of the few players that he has gone above and beyond yes. to praise this year, correct? I, I would agree. Hey, Mike, before we go any further, let me pause to remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by Holman Cadillac, where at the moment you can get 0% financing on all new Cadillac ATS, ATS Coupes, STSs, SRXs, XTSs. I don't think there's an STS, but there's a CTS. I just made a Cadillac model. Uh, Cadillac is a luxury car, and Holman Cadillac in Mountain World, New Jersey, a luxury car experience called one- one eight six six eight six five six nine seven three, or go to homeandcadillac.com. Now, I would agree. Well, speaking of praise, 
Should we get to yes. our, our feature, our topic? Let's talk about some throwgasms. Okay. Here's mine. Go. The first time I felt my insides tingle a little bit <laughs> was when Carson Wentz, and again, many of the, the funny thing about it is many of these, <laughs> many of these were called back due to penalty yes. or dropped. They did not. They don't actually show up in the box score. But Carson Wentz made a throw last night that is the type of throw Doug Peterson talks about when he talks about watching Carson Wentz's tape and saying, "Wow, there aren't guys who can do that." Except for Aaron Rodgers, you know Aaron Rodgers is the one guy, maybe mm-hmm. Cam Newton, maybe to quote he the was, guy in Office Space. This is what I talk about when I talk about America. There you go. There, that, it's right in my wheelhouse. There you go. Uh, I thought I dropped an Office Space reference one week. You did get it? Did yeah. You go back and watch it. No, I've seen Office Space oh, okay. before. All I just right. didn't laugh at it. Um, Carson Wentz was rolling to his left. Yes. Like, actually, he was not even rolling. No, he's backpedaling. Scram- yeah, he yeah. was like scrambling to his left. It was a uh, complete uh, scramble play, and. Normally in that situation, the guy either runs, throws it out of bounds, dumps it off, whatever. Wentz, like, pivots on his left foot. And, like, like usually when you're thrown across the body, you're thrown across the body on the run. Mm-hmm. But, like, Wentz somehow, like, still manages to plant. And he just, like, unzi- un- unleashes this 15-yard bullet mm-hmm. to Brent Selleck. Now, Brent Selleck was in triple coverage and against a better defense that might not, not have been in well-advised play right but it was just a remarkable remarkable throw that showed not just his arm strength but his accuracy has been to me the most pleasantly surprising aspect of his rise if you watched him throughout training camp there were often times during practice where he would overshoot a receiver by five yards even 10 yards and you thought wow is it the motion you know is it just his the process of learning the offense because so much of a quarterback being inaccurate is just thought to be, well, he can't throw the ball from point A to point B when it's often confusion with the offense, not, you know, uncertainty with what he's seeing. And so the fact that he has been this accurate, you know, I can't remember, but maybe one throw over two games where you'd say to yourself, that guy was open and Wentz missed him. It speaks to how well he knows the offense, how well he knows what Peterson wants him to do. And then just, as you've pointed out, his ability to deliver the football. Um, it's, it's, as I said, of all the things I've seen so far, that's almost been the most impressive, I think. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Throw that ball. I'm watching a replay right now of uh, play action, split eye. Oh, he got crushed on that play, too. Yeah, he did. He really, I mean, you know, that, that's, that, and that to me is another kind of interesting philosophical debate about the quarterback position as, as a whole and Wentz in particular, which is, you know, we're all talking about the hits he's taking, and many of them are hits he can't avoid. You know, running and you know, get get out of bounds if you're going to scramble, that sort of thing. Don't turn it upfield and let the 270-pound linebacker wail on you. But by the same token, you need a quarterback who is going to stand in there and deliver the ball with a guy in his face when he knows he's going to take a hit, and he's done that too. Uh, you know, pretty effectively. I'm not sure if this is the play I'm thinking about, to be honest with you. Ugh. No, this was this was a pl- no. It's not. This was a play. A- the one I'm watching right now is a play action. This is another throwgasm. Okay. He. Uh, it, it's are you a- suggesting we were having multiple throwgasms? This, is, this has been a multiple throwgasm segment. Um, early in the second quarter, ten minutes left. Another penalty on Kelsey. Uh, this one after 
Wentz has play faked out of the split eye. Jarrell Freeman comes up the gut, and as his shoulder pad meets Carson Wentz's sternum, Carson Wentz delivers a strike to Brent Selleck in the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. It was one of those plays where you just didn't even know. I would assume Brent Selleck was the hot route, yeah. but he threw it in a way where you, he had to wait till Selleck cleared the linebackers, and he just delivered it again. Yeah. It's ama- it, quite amazing. Bring, what's your throw? Well, my throw, I think it was in the second quarter, um, was a 32-yard completion to Jordan Matthews. And the impressive part of it to me was, was twofold. Uh, number one, it was Wentz's feet in the pocket. If you remember the play, Wentz drops back, plants his right foot, and then kind of ballets himself up about six inches to a foot. Here it is. We're watching it right now. Play fake to Sproles. He, yeah, he, he just slides up a step and a half in the pocket and like eight irons a throw to Matthews uh, on the right side on kind of a, a it was kind of route. a weird looking throw. Yeah, um, he just kind of lolly. It kind of just like pushes it out there. He does, but but it's not. It's a difficult. That's why I like it so much. It's a difficult throw to make. I mean, Matthews, to his credit, catches this one kind of over his shoulder. It's a tricky catch for him to make, um, but it's it's a particularly tricky throw. That's why I use the the term eight iron. It looked like a golf shot, uh, and that to me showed, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of. Carson Wentz's wisdom as a quarterback beyond his years. You had a really good piece on Philly.com the other day about Andrew Luck's ability to slide in the pocket and to create time and space for himself. And it's one of those things that you hear football experts talk about all the time. You know, when they talk about mobility in a quarterback, people tend to think of Cam Newton, Russell Wilson, Alex Smith, Steve Young, Michael Vick mobility. And they forget about Dan Marino, Tom Brady mobility, Andrew Luck mobility, where you just buy yourself an extra second so that the six-yard dump off to the tight end or the running back can become the 15 to 32-yard completion to the wide receiver. And that's what Wentz did on that play. And then to, to get back to what we were just talking about, the accuracy of the throw, you know, to, to lead Matthews perfectly, to hit him in stride, to not overshoot him. Uh, it was really, really impressive to me. Yeah, the piece I did on on, on Philly.com was kind of looking at, um, look, Carson, it's very evident that Carson Wentz has a natural understanding and a natural feel for how a quarterback must navigate the pocket and the footwork it takes to do that. And he's a natural athlete, and you see it. Mm-hmm. But there are times when either he doesn't or he forgets, and you saw it at times in the Cleveland Browns game, and it didn't really – impact him at all right but there were there were many times where he was standing stationary and throwing flat-footed yes when he very easily could have put himself in a more athletic position to a extend the play and b make a better throw and it's funny because one of the i don't know if it was gruden it was one of the pre i think it was trent dilfer actually pointed to one such play where he did not do that kind of mm-hmm. bragging on him because he, right. he ended up making a Heck of a throw against the Browns. Uh, I forget exactly. Uh, I think it might have been Jordan Matthews, actually, the mm-hmm. one uh, in between two defenders in the middle of the field. When if you w- go back and watch his pocket, he had a great pocket, but he stay he stays stationary on the left side of it. Yeah. And it, the pocket kind of just like slowly closes on him mm-hmm. to the point where he's actually being physically pushed as right. he's completing the throw to Jordan Matthews, where eventually 
he will get to the point, hopefully, where he is sliding forward in that pocket and then making a better throw yes. and, and maybe even making a better read. And I think that's why the reason why I was so excited this morning when I was being a little facetious, but I was like, it's a very exciting time in Philadelphia. Like it's not fun to be negative all the time. It's no. not, it's not fun to constantly point out what these idiot organizations are doing wrong. <laughs> you know, that's why the Philly it, it's, it was a lot more fun in, in Clearwater at spring training this year. It's going to be a lot more fun when the Sixers open up training camp here in a couple of weeks yeah. and, and the flyers, I had a blast covering that first round playoff game. Yeah. It's, you know, we're it's, not curmudgeons. No, we're not. And it's just a matter of, you know, you have to, for lack of a better way of putting it, call it like you see it. And it was particularly interesting in that context to me to watch the Sunday night football game between the Packers and your Minnesota Vikings and your former Eagles quarterback, Sam Bradford. Because as anybody who's listened to this podcast regularly knows, we have spent a ton of time discussing, debating, analyzing, picking over the Eagles' strategy in this offseason vis-a-vis Sam Bradford, Carson Wentz, and the quarterback position as a whole. And, you know, in watching what Bradford did Sunday night, which I don't care what you thought of him as the Eagles' quarterback, and, and opinions varied pretty wildly, he played incredibly well Sunday night. He had multiple throwgasms. He did. Um you know, particularly for a guy who is still just learning the offense and had been acquired eight days before the season began, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and to me, it it kind of crystallized the entire debate of the offseason. You know, and we were talking before the show, was, you know, before we came on this morning, about kind of how the, in, in bizarro Eagles world, Sam Bradford is the quarterback, and the Eagles probably have drafted an offensive lineman with the 13th or the 8th pick in the draft, and they've taken a fourth-round running back, and the defense is still very good, looks very good. But getting back to this kind of core question of how different would the Eagles look if they had gone that route with Carson Wentz sitting on the bench not and, and us not knowing what he could do, but at the same time there being 2-0 and and Bradford playing pretty well, uh, it, it would just be, it, it, it's fun to think about. You know, it's one of those things that's just kind of fun to think about and wonder about. Uh, and it's something that's going to kind of persist throughout the whole course of the season, assuming Bradford stays healthy uh, and continues playing at a fairly high level. Yeah, I, I, I can't find the play that I'm, are we sure it was Brent Selleck, the one where he was throwing across his body? I tweet, it might have been Trey Burton. I tweeted about it. I'll have to go back and look at it. Okay. But, but Maybe to, it's Trey to Burton. build on that point. Because again, we were talking briefly on our way down in our in what constituted a uh, planning session. I believe I was getting nearly run over by a tractor trailer as <laughs> uh, we were in the midst of our powwow. But yeah, like I'm f- the whole the whole weird thing about how this is all unfolded is that, and I don't think anyone anticipated this possibility. But when the Eagles and the Vikings meet in the first week. Or second week of December. No, it's October. Or, is it really October? Yeah, okay, yeah it's wow. October. Um, that, that's actually what got me excited when I first started thinking. I started thinking about that game. Yeah. And as as impressive as Carson Wentz has been in the first couple games, like Sam Bradford was otherworldly in that game against the Packers. I mean, forget about the fact that he was – it was a question mark as to if he was even prepared enough to play. Yeah. I mean, he made throws – 
you want to talk about taking hits. Yeah. I mean, he took more hits than Carson Wentz. He threw that that touchdown pass. The second touchdown pass. The 24-yarder. And there's a great shot of it by the camera guy from ESPN. I mean, and you can see it from the end zone shot. Bradford's eyes stay downfield all the whole time. He's got, I forget who it was in his face. I think the rookie. But he delivers this strike over the top of covers. The only place Stefan Diggs can get it. Mm-hmm. And takes an absolute wallop. And I thought the Josh Boone or the, uh, jo- yeah, Josh Boone quote, Josh Boone? Yeah, Alex, so. Alex, Alex Boone. Alex, there's too many Boons in sports. Uh, <laughs> the Alex Boone quote afterwards where he talked about him being a tough mother bleeper. Yeah. That, that just. Hey, Sam, don't be dead. Right. Please don't be dead. Because it's funny because Carson Wentz, everyone's lauding his toughness already. And everyone was running Sam Bradford out of the town in large part because they didn't think he looked tough. But as you wrote, and I'll allow you to take your – I'm going to set you up for a victory lap right here. You wrote a column and then echoed it throughout your your columns henceforth about how tough Sam Bradford really showed himself to be last year. Yeah, and not just last year. uh, Before that, you know, it's funny to me how we define toughness. And I don't know if this is a sports-wide thing or just a Philly thing. But I don't get the sense that people in Philadelphia ever really appreciated, and maybe throughout the NFL never really appreciated, like what it took him, Sam Bradford, to come back from two season-ending knee injuries to the same ligament in the same knee. That's really, really hard to do. And to come back, and and not just, just to get under center and to expose yourself to that kind of hit again shows the kind of mental strength a guy has to have um, to be able to want to do that again. And then to play behind the, the line he played behind for the Eagles last year where he just took some, he got cracked every single game he was back there because Chip Kelly has no, doesn't care about protecting his quarterback at all. Um, you know, we had, again, we talked about this in the podcast, like how Bradford must be looking forward to playing with the Eagles this season under Peterson because there was going to be double tight end sets, and they were going to keep an extra guy in the block, which are things that Chip never did. Um, And then, you know, to have him go to the Vikings and play the way that he did Sunday night, where, as you said, just taking wallop after wallop and getting up and delivering the ball accurately. You know, I get accused of being a Bradford lover from time to time, but I just think it's a matter of people people see in athletes what they want to see. If you want to be Sam's lover, you, you got to get with his friends. friends. Anyway, go ahead. Spice Girls reference. Very nice. Um, That's like me, over, that overlaps our pop culture. It does. It takes me back to my senior year of college. That's in the concentric circle of, of our <laughs> pop culture wisdom. Uh, um, but that, that's just it, is that people see what they want to see uh, an awful lot. And if Bradford were playing with the Eagles right now, I think we'd be missing the awe over that Carson Wentz is inspired because he's a rookie and because he's taking to things so quickly, there would be more of a sense of like, well, Sam Bradford's finally in a system that suits him and he's a veteran and he's getting a chance to play. So it wouldn't be this sense of awesomeness uh, that Wentz is inspired. But by the same token, he played better in his game really than Wentz played in his two games. Not to take anything away right. from Carson Wentz. I don't yeah. mean to do that. Wentz was excellent. You know, just absolutely could you could not ask for a better two-game start to Carson Wentz's career. But Sam Bradford, Sunday night, was better. He just was. And that's what's going to make this fun. Like, getting getting what you were going to say, and I'll finish up, 
No, you're, that you're saying it better than I could. That, that Minnesota game in October, there is something about when the Eagles are good and rolling and there's a season of promise, when a big game comes around, like the whole week leading into it is fun. You know, if you remember when um, the Eagles played in 04, when they went to the Super Bowl, they had a game about two-thirds of the way through the season against the Packers. And the Packers were the hottest team in football at the time. Favre had straightened himself out after a slow start. And they came in for like a Sunday afternoon 425 game. That whole week was great. Two years later, when T.O. returns to the link with the Cowboys, you know, that those sort of games are what covering sports in Philadelphia is kind of all about. The storylines, the buildup, that's what that Vikings game in October is going to be like, assuming Wentz and Bradford are still playing like this a month from now. I cannot for the life of me find the play. But it is my throw. What, what other throws did he make that were really Every one of his throws, just about. Yeah, just, you know, and the subtle things, like that first drive, just being crisp and on time with short stuff. You know, the, the slant to DGB, it, it's there. It's in stride. It's not behind him. It's not too high. Um, the two throws to Aguilar, which, which should have been, the, both of them were in the end zone, and you can make an argument that, you know, maybe the defensive backs made a decent play or, you know, they were slightly underthrown, but... He gets the ball there in tough spots. And, you know, I would argue Aguilar has to make those catches. I saw a tweet from Pro Football Focus about, you know, how many additional yards Wentz would have had had Aguilar and Matthews held on to those passes. Um, you know, it would have been like an additional 85 yards. I mean, his, mm. his stats would have been, you know, really, really great um, if that had happened. You know, all of a sudden he goes to like 24 of 35 or 34 for, you know, 280 yards or something like that. So... I haven't seen anything yet now. Now that it's been two games in, I, I think we all feel pretty safe in saying the kid is really good. It's a question of how good is he going to be. See, like, so this week, to build on that, this week is going to be so much fun because it is the first big game. And maybe it's illusory. Illusory? Illusory, yeah. U-S-O-R-Y. But the Eagles are 2-0, and and they're going into this game with more of a chance to prove themselves to be legit than I think any of us would have thought they would have at this point. Even if they had won these two games, I don't think any of us pictured them winning it in a fashion where we would welcome the Pittsburgh Steelers to Philadelphia thinking, man, the Eagles have a shot in this game. And if they do, who? wow. It's the best of all worlds if you're a Philadelphia sports fan. And writer. Yes, because Philadelphia as a sports town functions best when – a team is surprisingly good. It doesn't function best when it's the 2011 Phillies and the expectation is that they are supposed to win the World Series. It doesn't function best when it's the, as fun as the 04 Eagles were, the expectation was they're supposed to get to the Super Bowl. And so that creates some kind of residual anxiety amongst everybody. You get agitated because the, the whole, the, the path looks lined with gold and Something always happens when when the path is lined with gold. Um, this is different. This is nobody expected them to be two and zero. Nobody expected them expected Carson Wentz to be this good. So therefore, um, this is if they beat the Steelers, incredible, great. If they lose, eh, they're still two and one, and they're better than we thought they were going to be. So let, let, let's try to put this in the perspective. How how has how has what you've seen? 
over these two games changed your outlook for the season? I don't want to say predi- I don't want to give you. I, I don't want you to give me a prediction because I hate predictions. Um, but what's your uh, what's your sense of this team? What can this team do? I think this team is is capable of competing for a division championship in this division. And I say that not knowing how good the division really is, but you've got wind they've got the wind at their back now. You know, they're two and zero. they're feeling good about themselves. The you know, you saw last year how hard it is for a team to come back from an 0 and two start. You know, they lost those first two games, including the second one to the Cowboys, and they were playing catch up the whole year. They're not doing that now. And so yeah, the Giants are 2-0. and Yeah, the Cowboys are 1-1 and with a rookie quarterback. And yeah, the Redskins, while 0-2, you know, and looking dysfunctional, still have enough talent that they can be a problem. The Eagles should be in that mix now in a way I didn't think they were going to be. Have you seen much of the Giants? Do you, I mean, what? I have not. I, uh, I, think, the Giants are, I think the Giants are a good team. Uh, it's going to be... It's going to be interesting. I mean, Dak Pre- the whole division is shaping up to be fascinating because yeah. Dak Prescott's playing well, apparently. I didn't get to see much of that game. You know, the Seahawks suddenly look eminently beatable. Mm-hmm. Although, I, w- I would remind everybody they looked the same way last year, and we were yeah. asking all the same questions about what's wrong with the Seahawks last year, and Russell Wilson went on to have a phenomenal uh, season for a quarterback. Look, I- I'm thrilled that you guys joined us here. We, we, uh, Mike Sielski is looking nervously at his phone. I'm texting Zach Berman. He's desperate to know what I'm writing in my column for tomorrow. So the we got to get downstairs and, and confab. The, beat, the beats get a little OCD on travel day. They do. Um, so, yeah, we're going to go, uh, we're gonna go dr- drill Doug Peterson on this atrocious performance that we, we witnessed last night. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, folks, before you move on to whatever other podcasts you listen to, one last thing. Holman Cadillac and Mount Laurel sponsors not another Philly sports talk show. Cadillac is the standard for American luxury cars, and Holman Cadillac in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, is the standard for a luxury car buying experience. See Holman Cadillac's extensive selection of new and Cadillac-certified pre-owned vehicles with over 400 on the ground and more coming in to choose from. Go to HolmanCadillac.com or call 866-865-6973.